Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Dinah Lenny has, her work has been called distinctive, engagingly authoritative, effervescent, profound, poignant, gifted, and beautifully wrought. Let's please give her a warm round of applause. Thank you. I, I know everybody here. <laughs> Which I think is hilarious. Thank you all for coming on a Tuesday, on a school night. Um, uh, what else? Um, Diana offered me a beta blocker today. I should have taken it. <laughs> um, you have to eat this food before we leave. Um, should I sit? Should I sit, David? Yes. That might be more cool. Well, my, yeah. my, my microphone is not on. Oh, <clears throat> well, you know, you can talk. Okay. Is, is this okay? Is this good, you guys, or is it too loud? So um, I'm just going to drink beer while you read. So. Good. Good. Go ahead. Steal focus. <laughs> Upstage me. <laughs> so, um, so most of you know that this book um, is is a uh, uh, was inspired by a parade that Jake was in when he was a, a kid. He was in an object parade um, at the open school. So the the theory of education at the open school is constructivist, which means the kids have to build the world in order to understand it. So, in yellow cluster. Um, this was a, a three-four combination, kind of a crunchy granola, you know, wonderful school. You can ask my kids what they think later. This is my memoir. <laughs> it's a wonderful school, um, and and so in in this in yellow cluster, the kids pick an object. <laughs> I, mean, it's, <laughs> I, I love that I love you all. So depending on how you're looking at me and how you're laughing, I feel like I have to check in. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so uh, in, in this 3-4 combination, the kids picked an object and they used the object for science and for math and they wrote about it for language arts and um, eventually they built it out of paper mache and they, and they marched in a parade, the object parade, which seemed to me like a really good idea for a book. Um, that is, if I were to take the objects of my life and, and put them together, um, to build them in, in, you know, metaphorically, maybe I would understand why I am where I am. So um, I'm going to read to you from early in the book. This piece is called Carpet Bag, um, and that's that's really all you need to know because it's early. And then after I read, um, David and I'll talk. I forgot that part. And then, and then who knows what will happen, but really we can't go home with the food. <laughs> Never mind that you've pulled your muffler up over your face. By the time you get there, your nose will be red and runny, and your hair will be flat with the cold, New York City cold, 
The kind that creeps up through the pavement and into the soles of your shoes, numbs your cramped second toes, which happen to be longer than the first ones. That's a sign, they say, of royalty, although you don't feel royal, not when you live on the sixth floor of a walk-up on 2nd Avenue, not when you can't even consider taking a cab, last night's tips being what they were, and this cold. You feel it between your thighs, even though you're wearing tights, black, snagged just above the knee, which doesn't matter because you favor long dresses and capizio flats. You with the broad shoulders and the big feet, all five foot eight inches of you trying to be an actor in New York City, and everyone knows actors are diminutive, but you will not be dissuaded. It's one of those dresses that's twisting about your shins as you walk, sticking with static, a print on fine-wheeled corduroy, vines and flowers in the middle of February, which is miserable as always. But you've got your umbrella in case, and your backpack over one shoulder, the contents of which are five eight-by-ten headshots stapled to resumes, a toothbrush with a head wound up in toilet paper, a Mason Pearson hairbrush, a copy of Studs Terkel's American Dreams Lost and Found, your music, up-tempo and ballad transposed and transcribed in the key of B-flat, three tampons held together with a red rubber band, a pot of cherry lip gloss, last week's backstage highlighted in fluorescent yellow, and a box of honey-filled cough drops. You finally decide you cannot take another step. You look, look up at the street sign from half a block away, 67th. You've walked just 10 blocks, 20 to go. Your larynx will freeze, you think. You won't be able to sing those 12 bars even if you make it on time. You'll give your ballad to the accompanist with a whispered, skip the verse, please. You'll pick a point on the wall over their heads, the directors and producers, nodding towards the piano when you're ready to begin, and nothing will come out. You're 22 years old, and you've wanted to be an actress since you were six, and you're looking for signs, and they're everywhere. Didn't Patty LuPone gaze directly at you sitting between your parents in the fourth row at Evita last month? <laughs> Didn't somebody recently tell you your eyes are reminiscent of Joan Crawford's? You're destined. Anyone can see you're on your way today, specifically to an open call at Actors' Equity on 46th Street to sing your heart out for 30 seconds for a chorus job somewhere in Wisconsin next August. But you're freezing, and your feet hurt, and you're not sure you should sing Hello, Young Lovers anymore, seeing as you're not especially old or especially versed in the ways of love. <laughs> At this point, therefore, a sign, any sign would be a good thing. And it comes, sure enough, in the form of the Fifth Avenue bus, suddenly lurching from a block away and then overtaking you. You run, flat-footed, slippers slapping the pavement, and you catch it. It's kismet. It's your life in your face. You're in the doors just before they close. Not a single coin in the change purse of your wallet, but you find a lone token in the bottom of your pack. There's another sign. Good that you didn't turn around and go home or duck into that diner with the fogged windows at 68th and Madison. Good you didn't linger to eat a bran muffin toasted on the grill with a lump of butter melting between the halves. You'll actually make it to the call. You'll get a number. They'll see 150 people before 3 o'clock p.m., and you'll be one of them. The bus is warm and nearly empty, and you plop down in the first of three seats behind the driver facing three across on the other side. Place your pack on your knees and pull, on your, pull your right foot out of your shoe to rub it against the opposite ankle, hoping to massage it back to life. The woman directly across from you half smiles in sympathy, then glances away. You've distracted her for a moment, but not so she'd remember or look at you twice. But you, you're caught. You're caught in that face. She's gorgeous movie star gorgeous. Her skin is pale and lined, but her eyes are enormous, sorrowful, set above high, wide bones. What's more, she's familiar. You've seen this face before, this face like no other, this face that doesn't belong on the Fifth Avenue bus. 
The woman must sense your gaze. It interrupts her again and catches you staring, which doesn't perturb her, not in the least. She only smiles, a real one this time. And you're pleased to be noticed. You're embarrassed too, so you look away first. The bus runs to a stop. A fat man waddles on and stands in front of you, fishing for change in his pockets, and all you can see between his legs, set in a straddle, are hers, pressed together at the knees, thin, almost lost in dark wool trousers. The man moves down the aisle, and now you notice that the beautiful woman is holding a carpet bag in her lap, clasping brown leather handles with black-gloved fingers. The bag is as beautiful as she. You have always wanted one. Needle-pointed squares sewn together and letters stitched into each frame. Letters making words. You're squinting now to pick them out. Titles, that's what they are, of books you have read. Books you have loved and all of them by the same author. Though until this moment, he was only a name. As if an afterthought printed near the bottom of each spine. Without closing your eyes, you can conjure those books shelved together in your room. Not the grimy studio that looks out on 2nd Avenue, but your real room. The one in your parents' house, where you still sleep best, though you're not about to admit it. Not to them, not to yourself. <laughs> and that's how it comes to you. Two stops from 42nd, 46th Street when you figure it out. When you raise your eyes from the bag to the woman's face, she looks like a movie star because she is one. You have seen her before. You do recognize her. This falls under the list of things you know but don't know how you know them. She's the famous actress, wife of the famous author. You tell her so, in case she forgot, except she's focused just now on something out the window behind you. Is she coming from home, you wonder, or on her way there? Does she live in one of those formidable buildings with high ceilings and moldings and parquet and a view of the park? Or maybe she and the author, the important author, a whole carpet bag devoted just to him, have a brownstone off the avenue all to themselves. What were the chances, you ask yourself, and what is this if not another sign? <laughs> Reluctantly, you pull the wire for your stop, put your foot back in your shoe, hoist your pack and stand, preparing to descend. All you need is a word, a moment of corroboration, and you'll be ready to step out into the cold. You have her attention now. The beautiful woman regards you patiently, and you grin back. Are you an actress, dear, she asks. That mouth the way it makes S's and R's. Yes, I am. <laughs> the bus driver pulls the lever and the doors open with a hiss. Good luck to you then, says the beautiful woman with the beautiful carpet bag. And you want to explain, otherwise she'll never know. It's as if she and the bag wound up on this bus of all buses to tell your fortune, isn't it? 46th Street, says the bus driver to his rearview mirror. Thank you, you say to the woman. Thank you, you say to the driver. And you're running on your toes towards sixth, your scarf loose and whipping in the wind behind you, as if this were a scene from a movie musical, as if you could hear the orchestra tuning up behind that dumpster over there. Never mind that you'll spend August waiting tables in Manhattan. You have still never been to Wisconsin. That the smells of garbage and sewage will waft up through your windows straight through the summer. That the author will eventually leave the actress and marry someone else. That all these years later, you have never owned a carpet bag. In this moment, the length of a long city block, just look at the signs.
a deluded actress in New York City. Is there any other guy? Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. Yes. That was lovely. So, um, a couple things. One, you know, I'm delighted that the title of this book comes from your experience at a, uh, you know, as a parent at a quintessentially Southern California school. As a parent who sent my kids to those kind of schools too, I always feel like there's camaraderie in the madness, so that's good. Um, let's start with a question. How do you remember? I mean, this essay that you just read is an incident that, you know, is at least, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, so... <laughs> so how do you remember? You know, um, it, <laughs> I think one of the things that's true for me is that the more you remember, the more you remember. Sort of like a public service announcement. <laughs> so um, the more you know, the more you know. But tr it's true that you start to remember and, and um, you, uh, at least for me, I, you know, I sort of immerse and um, the details start to come up and you didn't realize that you remembered the things that you remember. Um, the interesting thing is that after you write the stuff, do you find this too that that then you're not, sh then you can't call it up anymore, not in the way that you did before you before you wrote it down. Do you know what I mean? It takes a shape, right? Yeah, it's, it takes a shape, and then you then you've told the story and you've sort of given it away in a in a funny way. Right, and do you ever have, I mean, do you ever wonder whether the, you know, without veering into our, our endless conversation about invention or not, but do you ever wonder about uh, once you run, whether it's fixed, once it's fixed in that form on the page, um, is that necessarily the, you know, the accurate memory or has it become the kind of, the art of, the art memory, right, the shaped piece of art? Yeah, uh, I, I think I, I do wonder that sometimes, and one of the, one of the, um, great pleasures of writing nonfiction, I think, um, is catching yourself out in those moments. You know, is, is that you, you, you start to fix something and you're pleased with the way you fixed it and, um, and, and then something is off. Something is off and you realize you fixed it, you know, you've lied. Mm -hmm. And you have to go back in, which is to me the interesting thing. I think if I were a fiction writer, I might get excited about the lie and want to go with it. But as a nonfiction writer, the intention is nonfictional. So um, I'm constantly catching myself and having to go back and say, you know, that wasn't what it was. And, and um, what's interesting about what it really was. And the other thing, too, though, is that, you know, I'm sure you found you know there are different versions of these events, and so you know I mean just just I was just back east visiting my parents, and there's a story. And she's my mother is wonderful about this book, but there's one story in the book, and she keeps trying to correct it. You know she just doesn't remember it the way I remember it. Have to write her own book. Now. Yeah, well, you know, and then you say that, and it seems a little unfair. I mean, at this point, I used to say, "Well, then write your own book," but you know, she's not going to write her own book, so I feel terrible. But this is, you know, I mean, this is how I remember it. You know. So, a couple of quite, I mean, some just some. So, one of the things that's interesting about this book is that it's um, the essays are all not all, but many of them are these kind of interstitial moments, right? Um, the bus ride to the audition. We don't know what happened at the audition. We don't need to know what happened right. at the audition. The, the essence is the bus ride. Um, what is it about those moments that are that draw you as a writer? Gosh, it's so interesting to think about what we remember um, and and why we rem why we remember what we remember. Um, a, a wonderful writer named Patricia Hample says to follow the image. 
and I think I had a real image of myself at that time on that bus, but I should, I mean, to come clean, that essay um, came from a prompt. Um, the original prompt was the bus and not the carpet back. Um, and, and the bus was just, I felt like I want, you know, there are, uh, my editor, Dennis Matanka, is here, and, uh, and uh, we can pull the, yeah, please. Really, really a wonderful editor. Um, and we, he was very, um, in some ways, he was very flexible about um, the definition of objects. And in other ways, you know, he sort of would say to me, you know what, that's not an object. Well, I mean, a bus is an object, but it felt like it was a moving object. I don't know, I just felt like I had to look at the essay again. Mm -hmm. But that essay did come from another prompt. You know, what, what made me remember it was the bus. Were, is that the only essay that came from a prompt, or are there other essays here that also came from prompts? Well, wh what happened was, um, once I realized what I was up to, I started working from objects. So let's let's talk about this the shape the the way the book progressed. So there are 33 essays. This is like as a symmetry freak. This is this essay is just my fan. This book is like my fantasy, right? There's three parts, 11 essays in each part, um, bounded by a preface and a and an epilogue. It's just perfect, right? <laughs> you heard it. No sub no subtitle. That's another that's another another pet peeve of mine. Nonfiction books should not have to have subtitles. They should just have titles. They are books. They don't need to be explained. Um, so this book wins on all of those scores. But it so it's very, it feels to me like, in a way, very elaborately structured, but at the same time, it grows out of a miscellany. I mean, it, it began life as a miscellany. So let's talk a little bit about the process of, of the book, how it got started, how you started writing these pieces, at what point you knew you, or, or had a sense that you were working on a collection. Yeah, so this book took me a really long time. Um, I, I was writing about objects, and I was writing about objects because I was teaching, and objects are, are wonderful prompts, and actually I'm, I'm thinking of Cynthia's wonderful essay about the blue glasses, right? Do I have that right? I mean, there are so many people here that write about objects. Um, you write about objects, Diana, don't you? Yeah, I know you do. Fictional objects. My husband, Fred Mills, um, writes beautiful prose about uh, the homeless and the way they make homes for themselves out of objects that you wouldn't suppose. Um, anyway, we all do this, and it's a, it's a, great, um, it's a great prompt, um, I think, to work from an object uh, and to see where it, it will take you and, and to find out that you, that, that you wind up not writing about the object at all. So at some point I realized that I was doing the Jake's Parade. And, it seemed, and, and of course that seemed like a fantastic idea to me. Um, and, you know, nothing like a fantastic idea to stop you up. But so, um, so then... Or thinking so, you have a fantastic right, th or idea. Or thinking you have a fantastic idea can be really um, uh, terrible. So uh, eventually, I, I, but I was accumulating these pages and I wasn't accumulating them in any kind of order or any kind of sensible way. Um, and I sent, you know, we all have our readers, I sent the, the book to um, the very brilliant Judith Kitchen, who's a, also a wonderful writer. And I sent it to her and, and I said, I don't know what this is. And four days later, she sent it back to me and said, it's a book and she'd rearranged it. And really all she did, David, was put it in chronological order. She said, we just, we need to meet these people in your life in the order in which they appear. Mm -hmm. And suddenly 
it made sense. Um, the, the, next, the next sort of uh, shaping that happened with the book was really with, with Dan. But that's later in the process. What I'm, what I'm interested, I mean, Judith is brilliant, and I think, you know. But before Judith? But even when you were, um, you started writing, you were writing essays. I was writing essays, and I was writing and from you, things. Right, and you've been writing, and there are other essays that you've written in that period of time that didn't fit into this book. So at what point did you see that you might be onto something, that there was a sort of line connecting this particular group of essays? And, well, let's start with that, and then I'll, I'll ask you another question. Okay, so um, I think the first, when I first knew that I was really onto something was when I wrote the piece about the little black dress. Um, and I, w what I realized at that point, I, maybe I had accumulated um, 10 or, or 15 pieces at that point that were object-based. And um, there were, they were starting to echo. They were starting to resonate with each other. So there was the little black dress um, and there was the, the um, wearing the dress again to play Nurse Shirley, it, to, to, to be, you know, in my act, as an actor. So that, you know, that I was follow there were certain objects that were recurring and um, deciding that they were echoing each other and that if one was gonna be here, one was gonna be there. And of course, they, they didn't, it didn't necessarily end up in the order that I was thinking about it in at the time, but I started to realize that I was telling the story of my life. And I was telling a story that had something to do with, um, with leaving New York with Fred and coming to Los Angeles and so desperately wanting this acting thing. And, um, and, and in the meantime, uh, and thinking that I would return to New York, you know, that I would, that I would be, a, I would get enough TVQ to go home, and and one day I turned around and um, I had a couple of kids and a couple of dogs and a couple of cars and we bought a house and we weren't going home. Right, and one of the most moving essays, or one of the, yeah, I guess one of the most moving essays. It's hard to say because so many of them are moving. Is the one about your your uh, the selling of your childhood home yeah. and the fantasy that you guys might buy it, but then realizing that in fact that. Not only is that house no longer your home, but the East Coast is no longer. And, and so it now, so now, sort of to get to what you're asking me about, that's an essay that I've been working on um, for many, many years, for at least ten years, and that essay didn't come together until I realized it was part of this parade. Mm -hmm. I needed the structure of the book and the idea that there was a bigger story to be able to put that essay into shape. You know, and it, that was. That was really it was important to have the bigger picture by that time. Well, let's talk about that because I want. I'm curious about how once you sort of realized that there was a bigger project, that these essays were not just standalones, but that they were fitting into something. As you say, you had ten, maybe fifteen, so it's a third or half of the book. Right. I'm assuming. Some, and that was a good feeling. That was right? what um, Bernard Cooper calls critical mass. Yeah, it's like you have to keep going. Right, or you know, right. You, you're too. You're. It's always to me the most terrifying part because you're. You've got too much invested to give up. Right, right, right. But, right, but right. the hard work is still staring you in the face. Yeah. But how did that? Ch I mean, did that change, or how did that change the way you started to approach the subsequent essays? Were you then looking for essays to write for the book? We were thinking more about a project, right, as opposed right. to just gathering. Right. So more. one thing you should know is that as many essays that are as are in this book, there are again a third as many that didn't make it. 
so that I was writing into what I didn't know. And I think that's really important, that I didn't know where I was going and I didn't know the shape um, that the book was gonna take and I had a certain amount of confidence uh, not but I, I mean, I, ha I had to have faith. Well, you wrote a book that requires yeah. some confidence. Yeah, I did. I mean, you know, chutzpah as opposed to confidence. Does that, you know, there's a subtle, there's a nuance there. But I had enough, um, I, I, I had sort of faith in the idea. I've written into, I've written enough essays, um, started enough essays, and I didn't know where they were going, to feel that, um, that it was okay not to know where I was going on the level of the individual essay um, and on the level of the book. And, the, and the, the essays were really, really fun. To not know where I was going with them was a blast. Um, as I got further along in the project, I, I realized there were certain things I needed. You know, there, there were people in my life that weren't getting enough coverage. Um, and there were people that were getting too much coverage that needed to be sort of, that I needed to pull back. Um, Do you want to talk about who some of those people were? <laughs> sure. Are they in this room? <laughs> sure. Well, you know, you guys have, uh, many of you have heard me say before that I have to be careful about um, writing about my children and my husband because I want them to continue to speak to me. <laughs> so um, Jake and Eliza are really, really in this book. They they are, but um, they're, they're in it. To, a, to, you know, I think, what was the statute of limitations? You graduate from high school and I had to stop writing about you, Leslie? Yeah, so that, you know, so, so um, it, it, it's, ben, it, it's benign. And I got permission for everything I wrote about them. Um, <laughs> you know, Fred, Fred is a through line, but I don't, you know, right? You're, you're, you're running all the way through it, but I don't write about my marriage. You know, I don't, I don't write into, I mean, the person, you know, the person who comes in for the toughest rap in this book is my mother. Right. You know. Yeah. Although she, she holds her own. She, you know, she, it's it's a Valentine in its way. It is. That should be on the back. Yeah. Part. You know, one, one of the things I realized in, in you know, because you guys are like practically everyone here is, um, you know, my best friends. Um, <laughs> One of the things that, that became very clear in the book, and David was asking me about this earlier, is that um, that I'd written the, the I'd written a draft of the book, and I completely left my father out of it. I just left him out. And, so and we should say for those for the three people who don't know that you had written a book about your father. There I had. I'd written a book about my father, and and my father is dead. And I I'd written that book. And this book was very much about this other sort of life, and I just had left him out. And you know, again, somebody said to me, "You can't leave him out. You can't. You can't leave him out." And and that's where um, there's a a book called uh, an essay called "Letter to Dad," um, and it's you know, it's an invented object. I mean, it's it's an imaginary object because you know I can't write them a letter. So that essay is one that I think about in terms of an essay that was written to, you know, to specifically fill a need, a narrative requirement that the book has, yes. which was to get him into the mix. Yeah. Are there other essays that felt that way to you that once, you know, once you were in the late stages of writing the book, you sort of were, or say to yourself, I need something here about this. I need so here's a gap that I need to fill. Yeah, there, there are. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I definitely felt like the third section. Um, 
when I think about the book, Dan, tell me if this is how you think of it. Um, when I when I think about it, I feel like the first section is sort of, um, I mean, the kids are there, but it's it's me and Fred, and it's moving to Los Angeles. And the second section really feels like it belongs to Eliza. And the third section, I mean, everybody's all the way through, but the third section feels to me like it's Jake's. Does that did that occur to you at all, or not really? Yeah. So there you go, and that's good. That's good that it didn't occur to him because then it would be heavy-handed, I guess, right? I'm gonna say that's a good thing. Um, but the third section needed. I needed to dive into that section. And the other thing was that there was a point where I had abandoned the acting, and I need to. I needed to bring that, weave that in. Right. You know. So how do you see? I mean, both because the first book is really about your father, and then this book, and he's there, but it's also about the family. I want to, um, first of all, how do you see these, these two books as related, or is that a silly question to ask? Each book is its own independent no. um, project. Uh, do you see them sort of fitting into a larger project of your, of your body of work? I hate to use that <laughs> phrase, but do you know what I mean? I mean, were you thinking about a relationship between the books when you were finishing putting this book together? You know, I, I wasn't thinking about that, but I will say that I didn't know how to write either one of them. I had no idea how to write either book, and I still don't know how to write a book. And um, and and I am I am encouraged by the fact that the books are so different, you know, that they're structured so differently. Um, I, I feel like that gives me permission to discover something new next time. And as a writer who often sort of shamelessly or mercilessly mines my own family and children for material. Um, but your children like it a little better than mine, I think. <laughs> one of them likes it in a kind of weird and potentially unhealthy way. <laughs> and the other absolutely can't stand it, so I'm not sure that that's exactly true. Um, but in any way, uh, in, any, in any event, um, what about the kind of ethical or parental Questions. I mean, Calvin Trillin famously has said, you know, when his kids became teenagers, he stopped referring to them by name. Once in a while, he would refer to one of them as a teenager I know. That was her designation. Uh -huh. and pieces. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious just about that, as, both as a kind of creative um, challenge, but also as a parental challenge. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so my, my kids are still the most, I mean, for me, they're the most telling people in the world, or the people that I think about, I, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, I don't think about you guys all the time, but they're very interesting. Just 98% of yeah. the time. I mean, they're interesting to me, their lives are interesting to me, the way they think is interesting to me, and, and the way they surprise me, and they really surprise me, um, you know, even more often than I, than I know. I sort of don't realize I'm surprised and then kind of think for a minute, and realize that I'm just absolutely stunned by by you know they are brilliant and and you know and they and and they are their own people and they have their own lives um, and I really do feel at this point um, as fascinated as I am and as compelling as they are that I have to find other things to write about because they won't talk to me they'll stop talking to me it, it, you know. And because, and with the with the understanding that there's so much that I get about my kids, I think, in terms of my, in terms of our history together. But there are also lots of things I don't know now. They have very private lives, and and I, you know, I don't, I don't talk to, to, to them every day. I don't know what they do all the time. I mean, we're not. It's not that kind of relationship. Mm -hmm. I, I hope they know I have their backs. 
here I am, guys, but I don't know enough to be writing about them anymore. There's stuff that happens to them that affects me. And, um, and I would say that in this case, the, and, and I'm dying to write about it, but the parental issue sort of um, takes precedent. Right, right. Um, what was the hardest essay in the book for you to write? Uh, I think it was the letter to my father. I think it was, I mean, you know, once, once I wrote it, uh, I just didn't know how to include him in this book. Mm -hmm. I just didn't, I just didn't know how to do it. Um, and once I stumbled into the idea of a letter, um, that seemed workable. But also letters can be coy. You know, it's such a sort of a meta thing to write a letter. It felt self-conscious, and so I really fought that. Well, it's a series of letters, right? I mean, there's more than one letter. Yeah. The essay is comprised of a number of letters. Yeah, so it's, it feels well, like I, a correspondence. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, for me, it felt like it, it, it was stopping and starting and stopping mm -hmm. and starting. So that I think that was the hardest. You know, the, no, the hardest thing to do, and, and this is when it's really great to have a, a great editor, um, was the, 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 the prologue and the epilogue. So Dan's nodding. So what happened was I had, a, I had a prologue and an epilogue. I don't remember what, yeah, I do. So I had a prologue, I had a prologue and, and um, Dan read the book uh, and said, um, your prologue isn't working. And um, uh, he said, would you sit people down to a beautiful meal and not provide them with silverware? <laughs> and, you know, in other words, I wasn't sort of telling the reader how to, how to read the book. So, but the thing that was so great was that instead of trashing my prologue and saying, get rid of this, he said, um, I'm not, I don't think this is your prologue, but it might be your epilogue. Right? Isn't that how that happened? So, so I, which was brilliant. You know, like why didn't I think of that? Um, so I then the epilogue took take, took shape um, eventually in a way that was I think we were both really happy with, but it was really hard, and the prologue was even harder, which is interesting because you know it's the first thing the reader gets, and it was the last. It was absolutely the last thing I wrote. That makes sense, though. You have to have the book in place. Yeah. So you're very revealing, but you're also very discreet. Yeah. And that rate that makes a re I mean, to me it makes a really I I <laughs> no you definitely are it makes a really interesting tension for two reasons one in terms of you know the focus being on the narrator as the character so what she's perceiving rather than what's going on um, and 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 the essays don't pull focus I think that ha that operates in the family stuff where you're talking about um, children parents etc but it's really filtered through you and it's also in those interactions with say the actress on the bus who don't tell us who it is you give us some hints but you don't tell us who it is do you know who I'm it about is? to ask you who it is does anyone know who it is no oh, I say Ruth Gordon no no it's Patricia Neal Whose husband actually had an affair with her best friend and then left her. See, right? now that's something that's I don't. Yeah. I didn't know that. So that's even worse. He was a great children's writer, been a real prince among men. Yeah. Um, but uh, but okay. Um, so that's one. And also, um, BJ, the boy journalist, who oh. comes to your house and harangues your uh, your dinner party about their naivete about the Iraq War. You, I'm not going to ask you necessarily to expose. I him. shouldn't say who. Um, but that. <laughs> but some of you know. Give us a 
<laughs> but that, but there's that sense of even when the essays move outside of the family sphere and into sort of the, for want of a better word, the global sphere, there's still an aspect of that kind of discretion in the revelation. And I'm really curious about that as a as a strategy. I wonder if you can talk about that. You know, I'm so I'm so glad you asked me that because this is something I've thought a lot about recently. Um, I, I think. Um, and Diana and I have talked about this a lot, this business of, of, of the difference between writing um, fiction and nonfiction. Um, I think I write nonfiction because I want to be discreet. And I, you know, if I were to write fiction, um, I, I don't want to say that I'm not brave, because I think I'm, I'm brave, but there are things that I don't want you to know about me. And there are certainly things that I don't want you to conjecture about. And um, not just not just all of you, but but my you know my family. My I mean I really there are things that I feel like as a nonfiction writer I'm in control of my material um, in, in a way that as a fiction writer I might not be. You know I would have to go to different places as a fiction writer. Um, I, I don't, and I don't know if this is an, if this is cowardly. I don't know. I'm I'm deciding. I'm thinking about it. Wait. If you don't you don't know if the decision to write nonfiction is cowardly. My decision to write nonfiction is a, because I certainly it's not for lack of imagination. But if I fully imagine something, I don't want um I don't. So the way I I best describe this is the, the way I sort of think about this is there's a. a, a, a a writer who's had an enormous success this year, um, a, 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 woman, a young woman who's written a collection of stories, and her stories are, um, you know, they're very, very uh, dark and um, difficult and painful and excruciating, and, um, and if you were to think that those stories were um, based in her life, I mean, she's writing about, uh, a husband and children and betrayal, kind of relentlessly, beautifully, you know, just gorgeous prose. Um, but she she looks just like the character in the fiction, mm -hmm. and she has the same number of children, and she lives in the same town. And I, you know, and and it's fiction, and she said it's fiction, and that's okay with her family, and it's okay with her friends, and it's okay with her. Um, and that's that's terrific, but I don't want people conjecturing about my life that way. So if you write nonfiction where it clearly is about you and your family, I'm then you're I'm controlling control. the revelation. I can control the you revelation. Can control the revelation. That's interesting. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. I think I write nonfiction because I want to be indiscreet, but I can't help being discreet. <laughs> my mother is. I know. Well, you know, it's so funny because I did write one essay that was indiscreet, and um, and I was very proud of it for five minutes, and um, and again, it was Judith Kitchen who said, "You're not this kind of writer. This is not what you do." <laughs> so I pulled it. You know, it's okay. So let's talk a little bit about objects, because they are, it is, I mean, it's in the title of the book, and I do think that this idea of sort of the resonance of objects is really interesting to me. Um, it's definitely sort of, you know, other than the other through lines, I mean, that resonance of objects is a real through line here, the resonance of a watch, of a table, of a dog's collar, um, of the carpet bag, of, you know, a, of, of a couple of little black dresses. Um, what, what about that? 
Well, I'm very materialistic and shallow. <laughs> that was what I was going for. Um, no, I, you know, I think uh, we do attach to things. Uh, I mean, I, I do. I'm very, I'm very much of this world and very attached. Um, but the interesting thing about the objects is that they weren't necessarily the ones I thought I'd be writing about. You know, I mean, I would sort of, you know, lots of them are. Lots of them are, are um, you know, beautiful objects, but, but some of them aren't. Um, and, and I think um, I was surprised at which objects told the stories. You know, but I do think, you know, we, in, we invest in them. I was thinking about this today because somebody asked me for, uh, asked me to send pictures of the objects. And so um, I don't have an iPhone. So I'm not yet attached to an iPhone. So Fred was wandering around the house taking pictures for me. And I was thinking, you know, if anybody else were to look at these things, they would be, they're absolutely meaningless. They're, they were, they, you know, no, they were lovely pictures, but you know, they're not beautiful photographs or anything. Um, and, and they're, you know, it's, ju it's just a guitar. You know, it's, it's just a, what, what else? What else did we take today? It was ju just a chandelier, just a, a watch on, just a, a, you know, sort of a, a watch on a band. And, and, and anybody, they mean nothing to anybody, but they're, you know, we endow things over time. And, um, and uh, you know, I happen to be very attached to, to, to things I don't even want to be attached to. But isn't that the point, though, that the idea that, you know, we invest, the objects themselves are inherently meaningless, right? Right, right. But we invest meaning into them, so that chandelier becomes meaningful for its own reasons. The piano becomes meaningful for its own reasons. Right. The watch that no longer works, that was washed. You know, put in the washing machine right, is right. meaningful for its own reasons that are completely separate from its functionality. Right? right. I mean, I think the mistake is to think. I know when we do this, you know, one time in a, in a um, in a class, you know, I, I said to a bunch of students, "Okay, I want you to write from a pet. You know, think of your think of you know an animal that means something to you, and I want you to write from that animal." And you know, ten minutes later, everybody was sort of squawking and barking and quacking and you know, neighing. And this was not what I meant. You know, um, when I when I wrote about the, you know, I, I mean, I wanted them to tell stories. You know, I wanted the, the animals to tell stories. And I think that's how I thought about the objects. Was that you know, not this is not about um, describing the piano to you. This is about the fact that the piano belongs to my grandfather and that it's it's my grandfather's. Um, my legacy has something to, you, you know, to do with the fact that my grandfather was a musician. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so, it's that stuff. And it ties into the fact that in some way the stories are also the emotional or psychological objects. They become emotional right. or psychological objects, right. right? That's what we've got. Right. And without the stories, we've got nothing. Itself, yeah. Right? Yeah. Should we turn it over to these guys? Sure. Okay. We, um, oh, thank you, Dinah. We will gladly take questions from the floor if there are such questions to be had. So don't be shy, raise your hands. No. John, I was wondering, you just said that um, when you remember that you don't remember it anymore because you remembered it. Uh huh. I'm just wondering if you think it's because, not that it's so much on the page, but you assumed that you remember it. So you start sort of going in. I mean, I think that I think that is it that I've given it such shape and detail and you know sort of as much dimension as I can give the memory that 
that having written, it becomes written. And it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's like, it's like remembering, I mean, I think it's a lot like remembering dreams, don't you? That you, um, when you write nonfiction, when you write memoir, it's, um, you know, when you, uh, as soon as you articulate something, you know, so you, you, you wake up in the morning and you have this sense of a dream and the dream is, is, is dimensional and, and foggy and interesting and has colors and stuff and then you tell someone the dream and it's not that anymore. You lose, you know, you lose all that the stuff of it. And so, this in a way, this is the opposite because I'm I'm um, trying to bring the dream back into the stuff. But once I've brought it back in and I've given it that shape, it's like the grass is a certain color for me, and it's there's not a question about it. Does that make sense? And you you talked about writing memoir as way of figuring something out or, or trying to get at something or get an answer. Do you feel like you've been writing this book and you get to the other side of it and make the discovery? Um, you know, I don't think I made one discovery. Um, so, and I think, you know, the that's what, you know, the, the essayist, you know, is always trying to figure something out. Um, and I think, I think generally speaking with writers and with artists that it's always much more about the questions than the answers. Um, so it's not that I it's not that I feel like I need to get to the answers so much as that I need to keep asking and, and I need to take the question as far as I can take it. Um, and I sort of feel like this this book will keep delivering for me. Um, but what it what it um, what it did show me really very clearly with what my preoccupied you know what I'm preoccupied with and the questions I'm preoccupied with and I suppose I'll continue to be preoccupied you know, how how did I end up here in this place doing this you know how it's just so strange you know 30 years later to be in Los Angeles you know with, with a couple of kids who are all grown up and you know how did that happen you know yeah. Oh, do you know that site? Marcy, what's that that site with the burning the burning house stuff? The, it's called the burning house. This site is so fantastic. Um, people take pictures of their the stuff that they they leave. You know, it's and it's so funny that you say that because you have a, a house full of stuff too. Uh, I bet you have a. Do you have a list? I used to have a list. I used to have a list, and the reason I had a list was because our neighbor's house were, started to burn down, and 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 really we thought, oh my God, what if the house catches fire? And so after that, I had this list, you know, and the and of course it was. You know, the books, the photographs, you know, it was the photographs. And then there was the guitar, you know, how did, you know, and I couldn't leave the house without the silver. It's like, really, Donna? You know, um, I, I don't have the list anymore. But, but, you know, there, I mean, I think the thing that I would really grab, um, although there's so much online now, but I would grab those photo albums, which is, you know, I'd grab the pictures of the stuff. <laughs> Not the stuff itself, right. just the pictures yeah. of the stuff. The picture, the evidence. <laughs> I had stuff. Yeah. I have a comment to make on that. I did have a fire in my house. I grabbed the photos. My husband grabbed the car keys in his wallet. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Very smart. 
Other questions? Yes. What was your favorite object to write about and why? The favorite in the book? Oh, you know, that's really hard. I, I loved writing about so many of them. Um, I, I, I loved uh, the stick kite which, which, because it surprised me. Um, and it's the shortest piece in the book. Um, and it's a, it turns out to be a story about Eliza. Um, I, I loved the idea that there was a piano one and a piano two. I, was, I loved writing about the metronome. Um, what am I forgetting, Freddie? Oh, the yeah, the leather jacket. The leather. I loved, loved writing about the leather jacket, and I loved writing about Fred's dad's coffee table. That was a blast. You know, some of them just came, and others not so much. And my converse question is, what was the object you knew you needed to write about, and you just kept not writing about that one? The one I knew I needed. Well, the thing that was so great was that, um, that there were so many that I could throw away. Um, but I'll tell you, there was one, I, I don't know if I can answer that question, sorry, but I will tell you that there's one essay that I have never, ever gotten right, and it didn't make it into the book, and it's about the Buffalo China in the house, and I cannot get it. I can't get it right. I can't get it. I cannot make that essay work. And, you know, Dan very kindly at the very end said, I think you cover this territory in other ways. <laughs> okay. I didn't even fight him. So, so what other essays didn't work, or didn't make the book? Um, there was one about the spiral staircase, which was all about um, living in a house that feels like somebody put it up, you know, like the Carnies came along and set it up, and <laughs> we're going to take it down again, and you know, it was like enough for me with the with the staircase. Um, and there was, oh, I. Um, you know, I didn't cover, and I, you know, the thing about writing about your family is that you think, oh my God, I, I need, so I have this piece of jewelry from this grandmother, so I better do this piece of jewelry from that grandmother. You know, it got a little ridiculous, so there was some of that, you know. Um, uh, there was one about the, there was another essay about the dogs that came out of having a, one of, a, a certain dog, a dog bed um, and that didn't make it in. Um, there was one about my mother's soup pot, and at that point, I, I had um, redeemed my mother sufficiently that I didn't have to say she was a genius anymore. I mean, she is a genius, and she's a genius in the book, but I'd already done it, so I could throw the soup pot away. And then let me actually ask you a question, too, which has to do with the idea of... Phrase this exactly. The bigger picture, let's say. I mean, these are very, very personal essays about very, very personal experience, but the aspiration or the intent is that they say something broadly resonant about all of us, right? About I, I the human so condition to one and to, for, for another. So, how much of that, I mean, is that, how much of that is a conscious process in writing? Are you aware of this when you're writing? Is this a concern? Or are you simply writing the essays as they come out and then hoping that they have that sort of, that broader connection, that they're not just um, that interior? Yeah, you know, I'm afraid what I'm aware of when I'm writing, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm not writing well, what I'm aware of is that I'm in my navel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, I, and, it, and it's upsetting to me that I don't have a larger, that I ha and you as, have a larger navel? Yeah, that I have a larger navel. <laughs> that to this point, I don't have, I mean, I have many, many of you are, are wonderful writers here, and you're writing about big ideas and 
big themes and you're writing work that is politically and socially charged and um, that speaks to a, a wide audience and I admire you so much and I am not doing that yet um, and I don't know that I know how to do that so so one of the things that I have to do constantly um, is sort of question um, my authenticity uh, and um, I, ha I, ha I work very hard to cop to that in, in, the, in the pages to say, you know, shoot, I'm in my navel again. Yeah, no, I, 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 that's just an interesting, I mean, I wrestle with that all the time too, yeah. so I'm just curious your, your thoughts. Other questions? Okay. I'm, I'm really interested in the essay you rejected because you're, quote, not that kind of writer. <laughs> what is that kind of writer? <laughs> um, well, you know what? So I think there is a, a kind of a trend right now. Um, you know, there are just a lot of essays out there um, where people are very frankly and bravely and beautifully um, talking about their very present, you know, consternation, um, relate, you know, talking about uh, their emotional lives in a way that affects other people. Um, you, you know what I'm thinking of? Uh, I'm thinking of Lauren Slater had an essay, a modern love essay, um, several years ago, where she totally dissed her husband. We was like, you, you know, that kind of stuff, or... Um, well, in this case, this wasn't about my husband, but but it was it was it was the 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 wounds were. I thought I wrote very well, but the wounds were fresh, and and they're nobody's business. So if I were a fiction writer, maybe I could write into that and then take it further and take it in other directions. But I'm not. I'm a nonfiction writer, and I don't I don't write about fresh wounds in that way. At this time, I write from memory. But isn't just play devil's advocate, not even play devil's advocate, but just carry this a little further, isn't sort of the obligation, regardless, memory or otherwise, that you have to be as rigorous or ruthless with yourself as you are with the people that you're writing? I mean, you have to sort of yes. present yourself yes, and as I, flawed and three-dimensional. Yes, and I was, and I was, and I, and I think I, I, I think I do that, um, but uh, yes, and even so, um, there are implications for other people, even so. And, and at some point when you're writing nonfiction and you're baldly saying this is nonfiction, you have to take responsibility for that. Right. You know, you just have to say, okay, I'm, this one, I, it's not, I don't have to do this. this is no, those, those do. people walk and talk in the world under their own names right. outside of the pages of your book. Right, and, and I, you know, and, and there's so much out there now about, you know, um, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking of the rumpus, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, uh, so how many of you know Cheryl Strayed's wonderful essay, The Love of My Life? That, you know, that's an incredible essay, incredibly bare, um, and uh, one of the best essays I've ever read. Uh, but I don't, I don't write that way about my life. I don't do that. Other questions from the yes. Writing about its objects, does that make it less attached to the physical in the world or more 
Yes. Um, so second question first. Um, there's a, a an essay called Purple Scarf in the in the book. Um, there are there are many. Uh, there's an essay called Script actually um, that's about acting on television. Um, I was a, I played a man on the Sarah Connor Chronicles. It was one of the best parts I ever played, in, and that that essay is a, it's about getting that part. Um, and Jake helping me learn my lines. <laughs> but um, there's an essay called Purple Scarf, and it's about and it's really really about acting and 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 the impulse to be in you know why somebody would want to be an actor, um, and it's very wouldn't you say it's very it's very much about. Um, the craft, as it's a it's a story. It's a story uh, about meeting Fred and and you know figuring out who who we want wanted to be in the world and and you know that we were going to do our lives together. But it's also very much an, an essay about wanting to be an actor and and why. Uh, and does the, the so and the answer to the first question is with some of the objects, absolutely. I think that that writing about them. Has allowed me to let them go. Um, they're they're because I have them now. With others, no, no. I mean, you know, now I think I'm more attached to my my mother's green earrings than ever. <laughs> Do you have? I haven't read your book yet. Do you have more than one essay in second person, and how does that free you up as a nonfiction writer or not? I think there are three in second person. Um, there's carpet bag. Little Black Dress and um, the dinner party, uh, the uh, chicken stew, chicken chicken stew, um, and I think second person is is um, you know editors don't love second person. They they it, it, it gets annoying and it worries them and they just assume. You, although there are people that sustain it so beautifully, like Mark Richard um, in in the House of Prayer Number Two, but. Um, it's not easy to sustain, I think, um, un unless you're in a situation where, what I find with second person is that it's a great corrective. If you're um, too far away from what you're writing about, it can bring the lens right in. And if you're too close to what you're writing about, it can, it can take you back. And, so, and that being so, it's particularly effective if you're writing about shame, humiliation, embarrassment, Fury, you know, emotion that you're not in control of. If you're really uncomfortable, second person can be very helpful, I think. Well, do you think it also has to do with that the objectification of that voice? Because often when you're when you're doing the shame thing in your head, you're talking, or at least I am, talking to myself, you, yeah, yes, yeah. stupid asshole, yeah. Or whatever. So it's you, um, yeah. right. So in, in some way, you're kind of embodying that voice in the in, in the essay. Itself. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah. One more question. We have time for one more question. Bear with me on my question, Diana. Okay. Um, I recall watching the Jonathan Winters show, TV show, on and that was improv. And what they would do is they'd give him some object he wasn't aware of, and he'd make up all these different characters and how they reacted to that. Uh huh. So I wondered if, if going to your the acting uh, question is is if you used your acting ability to approach looking at objects. In different stages of your life, or is somebody different when you were writing? You know, I think I'm always using um, my the the. Um, I think the acting and the writing are very close, um, and, and there's lots of overlap there. Um, 
I wouldn't say I'm using my acting ability unless, you know, um, it's to admit that I read everything out loud and that I mutter while I write. Um, but I will tell you, that in terms of, if, I, I, what I, one thing I can tell you, and I think this is true for all of the writers in here, is that you could give me any object, anything at all, um, and I could, I could do 10 minutes or 20 minutes or a half an hour, because it's about making connections. It's not about the object. You know, it's just about letting it remind you of something else. Thank you, Dinah. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Dinah Lemley, you all know her. Buy this book. Give her money. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.